Hi, and welcome back to OA on Air via social distancing. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week, Jamie Dunbar fills in for Cosmo on 321Go. Then we have an interview with David D'Arcangelo, Commissioner for the Massachusetts Commission for the Blind. And in two minutes with Tom, Tom and I check in on what's going on in the world. First up, 321Go. Hello, everybody. This is Jamie Dunbar, Senior Vice President at O'Neill and Associates, filling in today for Cosmo Macero. As always, I am joined by my colleague, Kyan Isaacson, and we are about to kick off three, two, one, go. Hi, Kyan. Good to be uh, on the podcast again with you. It's always a pleasure to have you, Mr. Dunbar. How are you? I'm well, thank you. I know I'm a far cry for to replace Cosmo, but I do enjoy uh, stepping in and filling this role and spending some time with our podcast listeners uh, whenever I get the opportunity. So thanks again. Thank you. We love having you. Very good. Big week. Big week. I think everybody today, this morning, certainly, and, and through the afternoon today, we'll be discussing the, the fly on Mike Pence's head. The fly on Mike Pence's head. Yeah, it, it, it always makes, you know, we're in such the throes of such an important election for this country. And unfortunately, uh, memes, flies, pink eyes, uh, you know, seem to dominate, unfortunately, versus actual performance and substance. But I do think it uh, is indicative of sort of the divide we see and uh, where people uh, immediately gravitate toward. Also, I think just a, a moment of levity every now and again is never bad for the soul. So thank you. For I like that perspective. That's a very nice perspective, Cayenne. I actually was. Uh, you Maybe know, a, not be so cynical. Yeah, I was, I, I was a little more pessimistic about it, a little more upset that we weren't talking about some of the more in-depth uh, analysis and and. and things we learned from each of the candidates. But, you know, I do think it was uh, in wild contrast to the presidential debate. You had two individuals who were a little more measured, um, able to, uh, the format allowed them to obviously uh, articulate their points and speak a little more freely. You didn't have the interrupt, the constant interrupting uh, or need to interrupt to get a, a word in edgewise. Sure, the vice president ran a little long from time to time. Uh, but I thought the moderator at least kept control and people did get a sense to kind of see uh, a more measured conversation on the issues. But of course, each was really more defending their uh, ticket, top of the ticket uh, versus, uh, you know, laying out what, what they themselves believe that they'll do over uh, over the course of the next four years. I think that it is, as moderator said in the opening too, like what the American people deserve is a civil debate, a civil conversation. That is certainly not what uh, we saw in the first presidential debate uh, and perhaps the only presidential debate. We'll have to touch on that too. But, um, you know, I think uh, there was, there was certainly some interruptions. One of the big moments of the night uh, was Vice President Pence interrupting Senator Harris and her, you know, sort of stopping and just saying, I'm speaking, mm-hmm. um, which for women everywhere, <laughs> I think really resonated. Um, and I think that was one of her really big moments of the night. Um, and it was an important one just to 
remember that um, that civility is supposed to take place and it, it goes back you know beyond politics and policy of the of the interruptions um, I do think that because of her previous debate performance and her experience um, in her professional career last night was Senator Harris's to lose I think the expectations for her were really high um, I think for the most part she delivered uh, to a certain extent, um, but it was overall just a much more measured conversation and a, a lack of direct answers, I would say, from both mm-hmm. <laughs> both sides, which, look, we're not, um, we're not naive to how this, this all works, but there is a way to answer a question and, and get to your point, but also still answer the question, and it is incredibly difficult, and I think aggravating, particularly to people at home, to say, why aren't you answering any of the questions that are being sent your way? Yeah, I agree with that. There were definitely a couple of times where it was uh, almost embarrassingly frustrating to be a viewer to say, I can't believe they're not even coming close to answering the question being asked. And we certainly understand you know, how debate prep works and sticking to one's message, but uh, there did appear to be some outright evasion uh, of specifics on a number of, uh, at a number of occasions. And, and that was, that, that certainly was unfortunate, but I agree with your earlier opening kind of statements on that is that was really an introduction um, of, of Kamala, Kamala Harris to the American people. Uh, a lot of folks who may not have had the opportunity to, um, you know, see her in action. And I certainly believe that you know, they carried out what, what they wanted to do overall. Um, I think, uh, you know, I don't think that there was a failure there at, at, at any level. Um, it was a good introduction, uh, showed certainly her abilities, um, as, as well as a little bit of the personality. But uh, I do think everybody, um, you know, would also agree that, uh, you know, the vice president, uh, for the most part, just sort of staying even keeled and, and never uh, getting as wound up as, as uh, uh as, as Donald Trump did during his, uh, during the debate with Joe Biden. And so, you know, I think, uh, I think both of them, at least on, on that front, um, carried out the task that they had set out to in debate prep. Now, but, what do you think of the fact that Donald Trump has come out and said under the new format um, of a virtual debate that the commission is putting forward that he will not participate when in fact the reason that they are laying it out that way is because he's currently mm. tested positive for coronavirus and the white house is a cluster of an outbreak um and he's mm-hmm. saying, nope not gonna do it although look i i nothing ceases to amaze me anymore that sort of comes out of this white house in the, this current period but you know, I would hope that uh, at some level, somebody uh, <laughs> there recognizes the fact that there is even going to be a debate um, is is better for probably for the president and for the process uh, than outright canceling it. Um, so, you know, to complain and whine that it's virtual, you know, I don't know how one can do so when they're obviously still very much uh, COVID positive. Um and uh, you know the importance to to try to minimize I- I interaction with folks when when that is the case. I mean, obviously we've 
there's proof that that has not been a top priority of this administration, given the, the fact that uh, so many folks within the White House are now proven to be ill. Um, mm -hmm. It's right up there with, you know, some of these uh, larger gatherings um, we read about, uh, even here in our own region, you know, weddings in Maine and, um, you know, uh, parties on Nantucket, et cetera. And, uh, you know, so basically, yeah, the president and his administration are, are a super spreader uh, event. Um, you know, it's unclear exactly when uh, and where that, that event was, but just all of them working together in close proximity, um, obviously disregarding social distancing and, and, and mask wearing um, has resulted in this. And so that being the case, you know, I would, there's two options and it's this remote debate option or it's cancel the debate and uh, nobody um, you know, gets to be the benefit or who you believe is the benefit of hearing what it is you have to say. Uh, even though in the first debate he didn't say much, um, we'll have to see how this one goes. But being remote, uh, maybe there'll be more ability to uh, sort of control um, whether it's, you know, you know, I hate to see microphones be turned off, though. I do think that there is great value when the candidates are able to say, well, they just attacked my record, I'd like to say something, or can I rebut that and ask questions versus sort of being shut off in the dark, uh, but obviously, um, you know, uh, disrespectfully shouting and talking over uh, one another is, is, is uh, never uh, a good look uh, on the debate stage. Well, we will, we're supposed to hear um, from the, the presidential candidates two more times before election day. So I guess we will wait and see. Um, but uh, election day coming up. Election day. Yeah, well, <laughs> right, everything we've been through topic, Jamie. <laughs> certainly shows us the importance of no matter what side of the aisle you fall on, it is important and imperative that you participate and that you get out and vote. And whether you vote by mail, whether you vote early, whether you vote on election day and show up, uh, make a plan, be prepared, uh, and do vote. And yep. um, a client of ours here in Massachusetts has done a wonderful thing this week, uh, set out on an initiative to help ensure that the polling locations, the poll workers, and that election day goes off as uh, safe as possible uh, with providing masks to every uh, election poll worker in the Commonwealth. Um, AIS, furniture manufacturer out of Lemonster, Massachusetts. Uh, incredible uh, story on their own. They're outright, you know, over 30 years in business, started literally in a, in a garage and has grown to uh, a massive facility, uh, 700 employees plus. Um, and, uh, and now they have spent the, the last few months um, organizing a campaign, uh, reigniting the Rosie the Riveter type of uh, initiative using Rosies to sew masks, um, using high quality materials that they already use on a number of their, um, uh, you know, fabric chairs and, and uh, uh, office space um, walls, etc. But to, to, to repurpose them uh, to make a high quality mask that uh, repels moisture, but also um, uh, to have all these wonderful volunteers get involved to make the masks, um, but then also themselves to manufacture a number of them. And they've 
you know, worked with the Secretary of State's office here in the Commonwealth to make sure that cities and town um, election clerks and town clerks were well aware of this initiative. And um, uh, almost every city and town in the Commonwealth has now taken advantage of it. And so it's been a very exciting week here for O'Neill and Associates and Seven Letter uh, ONA promoting AIS's initiative. Uh, and we are, you know, as always, as we were even before, proud to work with them. But, but man, what a week and what a great way to ensure that uh, uh, it's just one last thing to have to worry about on election day, at least for our wonderful poll workers. So many of them, as we all know, um, you know, are, tend to be long serving, uh, uh, you know, older members of our communities who have taken the elections and election process and election volunteerism. Uh, seriously for uh, numbers and numbers of years and um, but even new folks uh, getting involved today just to know that they've got uh, it's one less thing that they have to worry about. Yeah you know it's it's interesting when I was speaking with reporters earlier this week one of the questions that I got was um, how did a manufacturer of commercial office furniture getting get into the mask making and or mask donation game um, very early on, they saw, you know, a need to make masks for their own employees. So they dedicated a line of workers that usually, you know, work on the chairs and the fabrics uh, to make masks for their workers. And they said, well, now there's some to be donated. And um, then they embarked on this whole program called Sew the Masks. Um, to your point, they got volunteers to sign up hundreds of uh quote unquote, Rosies throughout the country, uh, as well as some corporate sponsors and partnerships to make it happen. Um, it's a really innovative program. Now that they've got a, a lot of masks, they said, where can we be most used? Uh, as of today, 261 of the 351 cities and towns in Massachusetts have requested masks for donation and over 25,000 uh, masks are in the process of being donated which is just really incredible. Um, and it's, it's making a difference. You know, people, there are some people who really like going on election day to vote. It's, um, it, it, it's a tradition that they want to uphold, or perhaps they feel that is the safest way to secure their vote. Whatever it is, we want to make sure that people are feeling comfortable when they show up at the polling station, wherever that may be. And thanks to this donation, that is all the more likely, which is just really exciting. Absolutely, absolutely. And so AIS has hashtag sew the mask. Uh, Governor Baker and his administration here in Massachusetts has their hashtag mask up mass, but it's math, you know, MA. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, the, the two dovetail nicely. And uh, I, honestly, again, I'd, I'd like to reiterate at least my own opinion is that uh, no matter your political affiliation, um, you know, to wear a mask, uh, showing up in, in public places such as your polling location, your voting location, um, you know, is the right thing to do for the safety of yourself, uh, your your fellow voting citizens, and certainly uh, poll workers and the folks that volunteer their time to make sure that those days uh, go off without a hitch. Mm -hmm. so, um, check out the hashtags, uh, check out AIS, make sure you get out and vote. And I got to tell you, Cayenne, you know, I, I, I don't fill in for Cosmo often, but when I do, I don't think I've ever seen a more natural progression of three, two, one. We went from the 
vice presidential debate discussion leading into voting and and uh, uh, masks for poll workers and um, and Halloween is upon us and another uh, uh, topic this week that has been hot is uh, communities choosing whether or not trick or treating um, is going to remain on the calendar or if uh, other activities are going to have to supplant it and so uh, there you know obviously masks there are the common thread for the transition of this part of the discussion. Um, you know, I think Governor Baker this week made an interesting comment that he is not willing to outright ban trick-or-treating as uh, the activity is more widely known and popular as an outdoor activity and the potential of outright banning it, um, you know, uh, runs the risk of driving folks indoors, whether or not they are looking to have a costume party uh, or, um, you know, just gather as, as friends and family. Uh, if they can't go outside door to door, they're likely to be inside. And that is not um, the best case scenario for trying to tamp down and control the spread of COVID-19. Um, so I find that to be a very, very interesting uh, debate going on. I think we've seen individual cities and towns, uh, to, you know, take, take it up for consideration and some have canceled and some say it's still on. Uh, but I thought it would be interesting if we, you know, talked a little bit about what we think about that, but more importantly, maybe provide our listeners with uh, some potential uh, um, alternatives, because I know uh, family activities that we have planned. Exactly. So we have younger children who look forward to the holiday. And um, yeah, so tell me a little bit about what, uh, what what you're thinking of doing this season, given it's obviously a little different, just like everything else in 2020 to date. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and to your point, there's been a lot of, there's been memes that have gone around of people saying, you know, if I can go into a store or I can go to a, you know, drive through and pick up food, my child can go door to door, particularly masks uh, are, are popular on Halloween. So it, it could totally work. I do see people's argument there. Um, let's hope the weather cooperates to allow for that. Uh, that's always a big thing. You know, Halloween's on a Saturday this year, which is always really exciting. Um, I, you know, as many people know, are currently living in San Diego. So I haven't, I'm not like dialed into the community here yet enough to know actually what people are feeling about whether or not they think trick-or-treating should happen, if it will happen, um, and what the semantics are. So in order to just alleviate all issues, um, we've essentially told my son, who's seven, who loves Halloween, that we're just going to turn it into a huge, you know, candy scavenger hunt, kind of like Easter, but, you know, maybe add in some creepier things um, and just make it fun. I mean, at the end of the day, he just wants, he wants to get dressed up and he wants to eat candy. Um, so we're going to make sure that that happens. We have also told him he is, uh, he likes to surf, that he can dress up as Aquaman and go surfing, uh, which he thinks is really cool. So you know, we're getting creative and making the best of it. Um, yeah, thanks, for, thanks for rubbing it in that you're in San Diego and you can serve <laughs> on Halloween. You're welcome. <laughs> but I'm here to help. That's what I'm here for. You know, but back here in New England, you're right. The, the weather is so key. I mean, I, I, there's been years where, you know, the kids are in T-shirts and other years where the winter the winter wear is, uh, is so necessary. You can barely even see what, what they're dressed up as. But, uh, you know, this year... I think maybe we're, we're looking forward to, we've been doing a lot of outdoor uh, backyard, uh, outdoor um, you know, movie nights. And so maybe we'll do a, a scary movie night if it's not too, too windy, not too cold. 
Um, you know, other than that, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of go back and forth on the, on the door to door trick or treating, but, um, you know, I do think if, if folks uh, get creative and, you know, maybe are, you know, instead of waiting for folks to ring their doorbell and, you know, are standing in their own doorway, if maybe they're also outside and, um, uh, maybe there's grab and go bags of candy or, um, you know, just kind of drop it into the bag versus a bunch of hands going into the bowl. There's there's all kinds of ways to probably tackle this and still have as as a potentially normal Halloween as possible. What I get a kick out of is when one one town, one city or town decides to cancel, then neighboring cities and towns obviously worry that they'll get a crush of kids and families from those communities that can't have Halloween to come to the ones that that can. Um, but, uh, you know, I think the one thing that constant we all kind of need to remember is we all continue to move through 2020 and the pandemic is, you know, let's just 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 be kind. Try to be as good as you can to your neighbors. Everybody's going through this. Everything's difficult. Both our our, uh, you know, our leaders are trying to do the best to come up with ideas to ensure some level of, 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 of safe activity moving forward. Um, and when it can't be done, you know, we, we just need to kind of come together and figure out an alternative that uh, still remains safe and positive and, and just do the best we can. And so. And, and just respect, the, respect the differences, right? There are going to be people that feel vehemently one way or the other. Um, people's circumstances are different. People's level of comfort is different. That's perfectly fine. Um, and there are ways to make things special no matter what. So. Absolutely right. Well, Cayenne, this has been great. Uh, very good speaking with you today. Thank you so much for having me in for Cosmo. And uh, we hope you all enjoyed listening. And that is it for today's 321Go. This is Suzanne Morris with Seven Letter. And I am here with Commissioner David D'Arcangelo of the Massachusetts Commission for the Blind. Hello, Suzanne. Great to be with you. Hi, Commissioner. We are here today to talk uh, because MCB just launched a new podcast called Career Views, and we want to talk to you a little bit about it. Sure. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about your journey to becoming the Commissioner for the Massachusetts Commission for the Blind? Yeah, really, public service is in my blood. My dad was uh, an official, an elected official, and an appointed official. He, he spent a lot of his time uh, working in government on many different levels. So uh, I had grown up going to public meetings and uh, being involved in the, in the public square. So uh, when I went to college, uh, I took some courses around communication and, and around uh, government and things like that. And I, I went to Suffolk University, which is uh, up on Beacon Hill. So between classes, sometimes I would go in and watch the debate inside uh, either the House or the Senate. So I'd, I'd always been interested in government and, and had a little bit of an understanding, like I said, through my father. So uh, when I graduated, it became uh, it became obvious that I would probably start my career in government, which I did. I started working at the Massachusetts Office of International Trade and Investment. Uh, and then from there, I went and worked in the governor's office. And then from there, I went and worked in the state Senate. 
and then uh, went and worked in a state agency and then left government for some time uh, before coming back to government uh, as an elected official in my hometown of Malden and then uh, got involved with political office and things like that and ran for secretary of state in 2014. And although I didn't win, that experience really led to an opportunity to uh, join the Baker administration, which I did and ran the office on disability. And then up until a couple of years ago was doing that. And then uh, the opening for commissioner of Mass Commission of the Blind became available. And as a consumer of MCB, the governor and the secretary said, hey, we think you'd be a good commissioner. Why don't you give it a try? And here I am. Yeah, I mean, and we, we should make it clear to uh, listeners to OAO and Air, you yourself are someone who has, you know, has low vision and have had low vision, I think, most of your life, correct? Yeah, I've been legally blind my whole life. So I think that lived experience is a qualification, right? I mean, I know what it's like to be, to have no vision, to have limited vision and and the challenges that all of our consumers face uh, with not without having vision. So, I mean, it, having that lived experience, I think, has really helped inform me about uh, how to improve services for our consumers all across the Commonwealth. Yeah, and I just want to say, I you know you are kind of a, a public service nerd if in college you were going in to watch the debate at the state house. But I understand. <laughs> I was that type of person too. Yeah, well, my dad was an alderman growing up in Melrose. Uh, oh, so yeah. he, would, he would take me to the Melrose City Hall and I would watch the Board of Aldermen meetings uh, live with, with him participating there. So that kind of ingrained it in me. So MCB really does have a long history of providing services to blind and low vision residents of Massachusetts, but I suspect a lot of people who haven't had the uh, you know, reason to interact with MCB are, are really unaware of what you guys do. So can you just give us an overview of everything MCB does? Sure. Well, we're focused here today on the employment services. There's quite a bit of other services that we provide too. So social rehabilitation services, and those start with uh, things like adjustment to blindness for people who are newly blinded and, and becoming uh, acclimated with all of the tools and, and resources and trainings that we offer. It starts with things like orientation and mobility, you know, which is basically being able to move around without vision effectively, being able to cross streets. Then it goes into things like uh, rehabilitation teaching. And so that's like you know, how do you dress yourself in the morning to match your shirt to your pants? How do you pour the cup of coffee without scolding yourself? All of those uh, bedrock rudimentary uh, things that you may take for granted if you have vision, but if you don't have vision or if you're losing your vision uh, can be challenging. So we have strategies there to try to work with our people to make sure that they have independence and self-determination. So and then it goes further for various populations. When we're talking about people who want to get employed uh, or stay employed, that's vocational rehabilitation. So oftentimes that involves uh, training with assistive technology. And then again, uh, orientation and mobility in and around the workplace or rehab teaching and training in and around the workplace, all geared towards uh, 
making sure people are have an opportunity, have access to opportunities for employment. So uh, that's just a brief overview. What I would say is if you're interested, go to our website, mass.gov forward slash MCB, call us, email us, get in contact with us. Uh, we want to serve you. So you recently launched a podcast called MCB Career Views, which we actually helped you produce. Um, why a podcast? And in particular, how do you think uh, the podcast will help MCB's consumers? Well, we've never had a podcast. And upon becoming commissioner or a new commissioner, I recognize that this might be a great way to uh, inform, educate, and train our consumers. And we went out to our consumers. We heard that they were interested. We know that a lot of them are accessing other podcasts in other areas that they uh, enjoy. So we said, let's get them the information this way. This is just another channel in 2020 to be able to get people the information that they need. So uh, I think the results have been great and we've gotten terrific feedback. So we're going to try to keep doing it as long as we can. I think we have 25 in this series and Hopefully we can do more in the future. Yeah, and I really think that, you know, so Catherine, our producer and I have both been very involved in, in working with you folks on uh, developing the podcast. And what is really, there are really interesting topics and I would recommend people go and take a listen because you will learn a lot, both if you are an MCB consumer, but if you are not an MCB consumer about um, about the opportunities that are available for blind and low vision individuals, uh, you know, employment opportunities, et cetera. Each of our consumers is so unique. Really what we want to do is try to customize a plan and work with them so that they can be successful. Are there common denominators? Sure. And that's what we try to talk about in these podcasts uh, to, to share these strategies that have proven to be successful for so many of our consumers. So um, the podcast is focused on um, the vo vocational rehabilitation services that you folks provide, but it's especially focused on throughout uh, a person's career. Why do you think it is important for MCB consumers to be thinking about their work life as a career pathway? Sure, yeah. Just like, uh, our peers who have great vision, uh, becoming employed, staying employed, and getting promoted, all of that, that's all a process, right? Mm. And so nobody takes their first job as their last job. So it starts with things early on, like mentoring, and then interning to get experience and figuring out what you like, and then interviewing and then getting a job, and then matriculating to another job or getting promoted. Uh, so we really want to promote upward mobility because we believe that employment really enhances a person's uh, identity. It, it, it can enhance their dignity, and it certainly will enhance their independence and self-determination. So uh, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to improve the human condition here at MCB. And let's face it, people who are newly blinded oftentimes are going through serious challenges and, and there can be extraordinary difficulties there in terms of acceptance and in terms of uh, trying to learn how to do things uh, without 
being able to see. So those are real challenges. And we have institutional knowledge that we want to bring to bear for all of our consumers that can help them in their path because it really is a journey. And so we're gonna be with you every step of the way from getting you those rudimentary skills of orientation and mobility and rehab teaching and uh, learning assistive technology all the way up through advanced skills throughout your career. So it's a pathway. What do you hope that those who aren't MCB consumers understand about working with blind and low vision employees and the VR services that you provide? Well, the first thing is, if you think you're experiencing vision loss or you think you might be legally blind, contact us so we can explain the process to you. Uh, and it would start with getting uh, a certification, getting seen by your doctor so that your doctor can report to us and we can add you to our register. Uh, so that's the first thing. The second thing though is about the larger community. So for the friends and family that know somebody who is blind or low vision, try to encourage them to reach out to us that we do have resources, that we are your state government there to serve you. Uh, and then particularly with VR, for the employers, everybody has talent. And we work with consumers to try to bring that talent out to your advantage. We want our consumers to join your workforce because we know they have talent to give. We're gonna develop a very specific plan for them so that they can be successful, you can be successful, because really it is a relationship, right? With employees and employers, it takes two there. So uh, we're there to work with everybody and bring our tremendous institutional knowledge to bear for them. So is there anything we missed? Just that please, people contact us, www.mass.gov forward slash MCB, uh, our social media channels, whatever it is, we have so many programs that we're working on for you and uh, our entire community to really just and try to improve the human condition and specifically here with uh, vocational rehabilitation. I truly believe that uh, the path to prosperity is paved by perseverance. This is a process and you gotta hang in there. So it's easy to say, it's tougher to do. I know what people are going through cause I've gone through it. So uh, one step at a time and we'll get there. And so I really believe that employment is a worthwhile endeavor and it can help people in so many ways and uh, give you money to do the things you need to do and give you the freedom but also give you uh, a sense of purpose and help your identity and know that we're bringing out the talents that are gonna help you, your company, and really in society. Yes, and we should say that if people are interested in listening to um, MCB Career Views, the podcast, it is available, a link is available at um, the MCB website. So they should go check it out. So please be sure to check out the link to this podcast series. It's right on our website, mass.gov forward slash MCB. And uh, it's such a great series. Suzanne, you and your team are terrific. So we hope to keep these podcasts going with topics that people want to hear about. Commissioner David D'Arcangelo, it's really always a pleasure to talk to you. Great to be with you again, Suzanne. Thanks so much.
Here it is. Hi, Cayenne. Hi, Tom. How are you? I'm doing fine. Two minutes with Cayenne. Two minutes with Tom. There you go. There you go. <laughs> but we have a lot to talk about. We have a lot to talk about. Kind of a, a news-packed week. A uh, lot of them are lately, yes. I, I, I think, yeah, I think the headline has been, you know, the, the president of the United States and the first lady with COVID. Um, mm -hmm. And then I, I think the underlying headline would be the fact that he's tried to show his masculinity and his manliness and poo-poo the whole thing as if it were nothing but a common cold. Um, and that he was thankful to God that it happened to him so he could create and find the vaccine or the, the cure. Um, just bizarre old politics. Um, just bizarre. Um, well, I think in the mitigating of this virus, when he was leaving Walter Reed Hospital on Monday and he tweeted, you know, don't let this rule your rule your life or, or something like that. Um, and a lot of people have made this point, but it's worth being made again. He had access to some of the absolute best medical care in the entire world. Uh, the vast majority of people who are contracting coronavirus do not have access and the money to spend on whatever treatments are available um, and in rapid succession if need be, for him to postulate in that manner and mitigate a virus that has killed 210,000 Americans alone, a little over that, not to mention all the others around the world, um, it, is, it just continues to show this pattern of blatant disrespect for what, you know, for what this virus is and what it has done. Um, and then the consequences of him contracting it and the White House becoming a bit of a hotspot or an outbreak, as they have come to call them, being the reason that plexiglass had to be put up for the vice presidential debate earlier this week, which the Pence campaign, I think, you know, tried to push back against. And it was like, well, you're in this position because of, you know, what, what has happened on, on your side of things. And then Trump coming out and saying, and I'm not going to debate virtually because that's not what a debate is. Well, again, this circumstance is being driven by an outbreak on your team. Um, it's just this, it's a constant, utter, just disbelief sometimes of sort of how this has snowballed into something and how, you know, he still refuses to take responsibility. Don't let this ruin your life uh, as other people are dying with the, with the same thing. It may be not only that he has the best medical care in the world, but that he may be just affected by it a little less harshly than others are. Because mm -hmm. we, we know that, you know, that this is an uneven disease as it strikes the people. Some are, some people are asymptomatic, others are deathly ill. Um, and he may be somewhere in that middle and uh, who knows what, what the real story is, but it's, 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 it's not about the facts again and it's not about the science again. I think the second thing is, and you touched on it, uh, we don't know who created the hotspot at the White House, but there are 38 people who have tested positive, and they all had to do with that garden ceremony, introducing the latest nominee for the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, and I, I think the storyline is, and they, they did not have any tracking to find out who else was there that might have been affected for testing purposes so that it doesn't spread beyond the gathering of a couple of hundred people that were in the Rose Garden that day. Number one, the second, the second headline of the week um, 
has to do with you. You mentioned it about the about the second debate and whether it will or will not go on. Um, and the third headline is one that's scorching the earth, as far as I'm concerned. Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, being assaulted uh, and and threatened by white supremacists who want to kidnap her and give her a trial about being the governor of the state and trying to do something so that people won't get sick in that state with COVID-19. It's just an astonishing story to me. And thank God our our FBI and our, our police forces and security arms of government were there and had infiltrated. What a disgrace. What a disgrace. And fueled, and fueled, fueled by the rhetoric of this president. What a disgrace. Yeah. Anyway, um, I don't know whether we've surpassed our five minutes by only three or four as we typically do, <laughs> but, but it's been a jam-packed week. And I can only say one thing to you, Cayenne. I'm waiting for it, Tom. And things will get brighter. That I put that I, to you. I promise you. That. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks, Tom. Thanks, guys. Enjoy the long weekend. You as well. Thanks, Cayenne. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's it for this week's episode of OA on Air via social distancing. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you next week.